Radio in South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Indeed it is, the long and the short of it. Welcome to the podcast. My name's Simon Hill. Good to have you along today. How you doing? Yeah, good, sir. As we speak to another South African major winner in the form of Trevor Immelman. Yep, the 2008 Masters winner. And you'd think, Dil, after winning the Masters in 2008, you'd think, this is it. This is yeah. going to launch my career. Yeah, you set up. I'm only going to go on to do bigger and better things. But that wasn't the case with Trevor. Well, I mean, he was, what, late 20s when he won the Masters. Uh, and and like you said, certainly the career was on a, a certain trajectory. If you look back to even prior to that, a couple of European Tour events he won, a couple of South African Opens, and certainly massive things were expected from Trevor Immelman going forward. And the fact that he actually even teed it up at the 2008 Masters was a feat in and of itself. Yeah, it's a great story too. Very, very sick before, battled with injury, and unfortunately after the Masters as well, battling with injury, he's now turned to commentary. But there's so much more to the man. Yeah, I think it's a great story to be told because we're going back 13 years now to when he won the Masters. So what has happened in between? How did he make that transition both physically and mentally from being a player, a top player, a major winner into a completely different career now sitting in the commentary booth? And a President's Cup captain as well. Yep. So here it is then, our chat with 2008 Masters champion, Trevor Immelman. Right, well, it's good to welcome Trevor Immelman to the long and the short of it. Are you still at Quail Hollow or have you since departed? No, I left, uh, had a flight uh, about a couple hours after play finished yesterday. So I'm back at home in Orlando, which is nice. It's been a been a pretty busy stretch. So nice to get home. I've actually got a week off here this week. So might even get to play a little golf myself. But other than that, all going good. Thank you. It must have been really weird to, to go to Quail Hollow, check out, Obviously, everything that happened at the Wells Fargo, great to see Rory winning and his first win as a dad. And I'm sure your mind on more than one occasion wandered to what might have been this year in terms of the President's Cup. Yeah, sure. You, uh, you're right. You know, we especially right now, we've got so many international players that are in good form. And uh, so that would have been interesting. But hey, you know, what, what everybody all over the world has been through in the last uh, 12 to 18 months with all of us, uh, you know, trying to get things sorted with this pandemic, is uh, it's been challenging for everybody. And so in the grander scheme of things, the fact that the President's Cup was shifted back a year is, <laughs> is not all that bad. And, uh, you know, I choose to look at it in, in a positive light. And so we have so many young players coming through I just think that this extra year of prep for them to be able to get some more experience, play in more major championships, play in bigger events, uh, it's probably only going to be better for us in the long run anyway. So Trevor, you've got obviously got uh, you know an extensive broadcast career now. you captain of the President's Cup, uh, the international team, but maybe give us a sense of what is a week, you, you talk about a week off now. Uh, what does a week off look hmm. like for you uh, back in Florida? Well, first things first, I get to plug back in as a father, which is pretty cool. Uh, my son is 14 years old. My daughter is 10. And uh, so I get to, to spend some quality time with them and hang out uh, and, uh, you know, get used to their routines again, which is a lot of fun. Uh, they got a few more weeks of school left before they go on this long summer vacation here. But other than that, you know, get back in the gym and, and, and maybe play a little golf myself, which, which will be fun. I uh, haven't been able to play much over the last uh, year or so, really. And uh, so just uh, kind of relax and, and recharge before the PGA Championship. That'll be a, a big week for us at CBS uh, to host another major championship or broadcast another major championship, which is going to be uh three in a row really if you think about the masters in november and then the masters in april and now this pga championship so we've been on quite a run give us a sense of, of where your golf is at trevor and, and and what your you know what your what are your objectives with, with your game yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know because i haven't been able to play <laughs> so yeah. in my mind it's pretty good but you know as i go out and hit a few balls this week i'm sure it's not quite as good as i'd hoped uh but you know for me it's it's kind of on the back burner right now. I feel like the uh, broadcasting stuff is is starting to pick up some steam, and I'm I'm starting to uh, be involved in in some of the biggest events. 
uh, in roles that I currently uh, really enjoy. And so that is quite exciting for me. I, you know, one of the things that I've learned about myself over the last few years is I really, really enjoy the process of trying to improve. And I think that's why when I look back at when I was playing more, uh, I used to really practice a lot and practice hard and spend a ton of hours out there. Yeah. And at the time, I sort of wondered why I was doing that. Obviously, you know, the obvious reasons are because you want to improve, but there's absolutely a point of diminishing returns uh, to where you just start wearing yourself out. Uh, but now I realize, uh, you know, doing the broadcast stuff, I really enjoy the process of trying to get better. And so, um, you know, that part is exciting for me right now. Uh, and and then, you know, the President's Cup is is on the forefront of my mind as well, trying to make sure that we have all the bits and bobs taken care of for everybody that's going to be a part of our squad, um, you know, from families to caddies to players and, and all sorts uh, guests. So uh, there's a lot more work there than what a lot of people may realize. Yeah. And so that's taking up a lot of time as well. So pretty busy, busy, but busy with stuff that, that I'm really enjoying. But as far as just the golf goes, you know, it'll probably be some time before I even consider playing a tournament again. Talk to us a little bit about the transition from from playing to commentary. We've got you and your brother, Mark, who's been in that space for a while, but you transitioned at a relatively young age. I mean, you were still in your playing career. How did it come about, Mm. Trevor? So what happened was uh, I was sitting at home in Orlando on a week off and I got a call from uh, one of the executives at Golf Channel. And at this point, I was kind of back playing on the European tour. This is probably, I don't know, 2016 or 17. And it was a guy that I'd never met before. And he introduced himself and said that he was from the Golf Channel and said, you know, have you, have you ever thought about doing TV? And I was like, no, not, not really at all. So he said, well, why don't we go for lunch and have a chat about it? So went out uh, later that week and, and met him for lunch and started discussing the ins and outs of it. And uh, he invited me to go do an audition. And so I went down there and got in the studio and, and, and ran through some stuff and kind of enjoyed that process. And then they started putting me into some of the pre and post game shows on Golf Channel. And then as that role started to progress, started to do some live golf as well. Um, quite early on, uh, at the time when uh, Turner Sports was doing the early coverage for the PGA Championship, they put me into the 18th Tower, which was a huge thrill, uh, you know, particularly as someone that hadn't had a ton of uh, broadcasting experience at that point. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was partnering with a, a, a TV legend over here called Ernie Johnson, so I had him shepherding me around. But, you know, quite early on, I got some really nice opportunities and started to learn more and more and and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I really love golf. I love everything about it. I love, I love the strategy. I love the work it takes. I love the intensity. Um, I love the, the mental challenge of, of you being out there on your own with no teammates to rely on and just being fully exposed. Uh, I like the fact that every week is different because golf courses and conditions are different and grasses are different and uh, you know, weather conditions. So uh, th- there's just so many things about the game that fascinates me. And then the fact that I have, you know, pretty much experienced everything there is to experience in the game from a standpoint of, you know, winning the biggest tournament in the world in the Masters to really struggling as well mm. and everything in between. I think it gives me a, a unique perspective and respect for the players that are at the top of the game. And, so my challenge really is to find the right grouping of words to be able to bring that across in the limited time we have during a broadcast. I remember we had Sir Nick Felder on the podcast and I really enjoy him on the coverage as well. And he was saying that, you know, sometimes you think you're having a great day, you're being really funny and witty and amusing and you'll come off and you'll get zero reaction. And then sometimes you're feeling a bit flat and people are absolutely loving you. Do you find, do you find that to be the case? Yeah, it's tricky. It's, it's absolutely tricky particularly for us golfers, uh, you know, and, and, and obviously Nick's one of the best to ever do it, but because we always knew immediately how we did just by our scorecard, 
Yeah. And so there she was 65. Um, you knew it was a great round and, and everything uh, panned out for you and uh, and vice versa. If you went out there and shot a 75, you knew what to, what to go work on on the range or on the putting green or what went wrong with your swing. And so it was very easily to get feedback. Whereas miserable, yeah. In the TV space, particularly with um, social media, it's tricky, you know, because exactly as he said, sometimes you'll you'll stick your neck out and say something that, uh, you know, could ruffle a few feathers. Some people love it. Some people hate it. And now with social media, uh, you know, everybody has a platform to make their voice heard and, and they can get on there and, and tell you you're an idiot or tell you that uh, you're brilliant. And so it is it is uh, it's a pretty interesting dynamic. That's for sure. Trevor, uh, Simon asked you about that transition and we talked about the physical transition. You talked about 2016, 2017, when you actually first started dabbling in the, in the commentating side of things. But mentally, how did you handle that? Because I would imagine, I know you you almost almost back full-time on tour in 2018. So mentally, how did you deal with the notion that perhaps this was now going to be the next phase of your career and that as a player, perhaps things were coming to an end? I was fine with it for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I didn't feel like I was being competitive enough for it really to get my juices flowing. Yeah. Even though I was putting a ton of work in still and uh, you know, I've had, I've had some, some body issues and some injury issues that have really been a tremendous handbrake on my career, particularly the second half of my career. Um, and then the other reason is that when I was playing full time and I, particularly when I was playing my best golf for that 10-year stretch there, I, I gave it every single thing that I that I could. And really from when I was a little kid, before I was even a teenager, I, I, I dedicated my life to the sport, playing the sport at, at the highest level that I possibly could. And so when it started to wind down, I was quite comfortable with that because I knew that I just left it all out there. There was really... The, there may not have been, and I don't think there was any more to squeeze out of it. I mean, I really, I really left, you know, to use a cliche, which I absolutely hate doing, but <laughs> I left, I left no stone unturned. You know, I, I did, I did everything that I could from when I was five years old to when I was in my late thirties. And so I was comfortable with that. I didn't feel like there was going to be any regret. And when I go to these major championships to do the TV or, when I'm walking the range this last weekend at Quail Hollow chatting with the guys, I don't, I don't really have a funny feeling because I knew that, that I gave it my all. And so I'm, I'm comfortable with the results that I had. Well, in part, actually, you have answered my next question, and that was, was it, with all this said, was it a difficult decision to not tear it up at the Masters this year? Yeah, that one was probably the most difficult because I've had a, a long relationship with Augusta National and the Masters through watching it for the first time in 1986 at, at midnight in Somerset West, you know, and watching Jack Nicholas win his sixth green jacket when I'm just a six-year-old and glued to the TV all the way through to when I played it as an amateur in 99 and then started playing it as a pro a couple of years later, coming close in 2005, being in the second to last group and then and winning in 2008 and continuing to play all the way through 2019 where I made the cut, uh, those ones those ones were a little more tricky because some of those memories are so more vivid and the fact that I've won there and it's it's such a um, you know cornerstone of my career, the Masters, uh, there was a lot more emotion with that. Mm. But, you know, if I'm going to really dive into broadcasting for the next 20 plus years, I'm 41 years old now. So let's say I dive in there for 20 years, uh, turning down the opportunity to be a part of uh, a broadcast at the Masters, you know, would would pr be a pretty dumb idea. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, it's just so huge and it's an event that transcends our sport that people tune into from all over the world. And so to have that opportunity to uh, try and bring across some of the knowledge and experience that I have had at, at Augusta National and at the Masters, I, you know, there was something really exciting um, for me in that as well. 
Just uh, we're not going to belabor the point about you know looking back at your career and regrets, but do you feel the, the you know the wrist and, and elbow injuries or the, you know if one looks at the injuries you've had over your career, do you think they robbed you though of of, of some good years? Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I Any do, tough I do. questions? But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. But I will say this: you know, you can look at everything from two perspectives. Um, well, at least, at least two sides, but yeah. you know, the wrist injury that really kicked up in toward the end of 2008, you know, I've often thought to myself, shucks, what happened if that came in 2006 or 2007 and then I didn't win the masters. So at the very least, it, uh, you know, it happened after I won, uh, in 2008 at Augusta national. And, and so, you know. I've got that that I can be comfortable with. But in the grandest scheme of things, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that some of the stuff that has happened to me that's been kind of freakish at times, uh, the different things that that I've had to go through. And I'm not for one second saying that any other athlete doesn't go through the same because I know they do. And I know guys and and women are going through, you know, all sorts of different uh, types of adversity trying to achieve the goals that they achieve. But uh, looking looking at my career, yeah, there's there's no doubt that it it um, at the very least it pumped the brakes a few times, which was not helpful. I want to go back to to the Masters because I mean a chat with you wouldn't be complete without us talking about yeah. the Masters victory and and one thing that was really really good that week and it has to be if you're going to win at Augusta was your putting. But I think going into that week you were ranked. 202 out of 204 in putts per green in regulation on the PGA Tour. Did it have anything to do with that practice round you played with Brent Crenshaw that got you right? Yeah, I, I, probably. Probably. You know, I played a practice round with him. I played a practice round with Gary Player. You know, throughout my career, I was always a streaky putter. So there would be times when I could really get things going. And then there would be times where I, I, I would be worse than average. And so... You know, that was always the, one of the things that I had to really keep an eye on. When I was playing my best, my ball striking was one of the better, um, you know, I was one of the better out there at that. Mm. And so, yeah, the putting was generally going to be the difference as to whether I had a good result or not. Um, and I just got off to a nice start on that Thursday morning. I hold a couple of putts, you know, in that five to ten foot range that you could easily miss. And those just a couple of those went in to save par and I made a couple birdies and shot two under on the front nine on Thursday and just slowly but surely my confidence started building. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was one of the good ones for me, but I generally always putted better at Augusta national for some reason. I think it's, it's partially because I was never a very aggressive putter with my speed Mm. And at Augusta, you can get away with that because the greens are so fast. You can just take more break. And then as that ball starts to turn, it picks up speed and it makes its way down there. And so even if the the ball missed, it would be near the hole and I would have some kind of easy tap in. And so I think that was one of the secrets as to why I always putted well there because I, I was I was generally quite defensive with my speed throughout my career. And you tell us about as you're walking up 18, Tiger Woods is in the clubhouse, you're three ahead, you're walking up the fairway, and there it is. There's your drive in a big, juicy divot. What uh, yeah. what goes through your head? Yeah, it was, it was, it was nerve-wracking because I, I knew I was ahead, but I didn't know by how many. And after I'd hit the tee shot, I knew that was quite a pivotal shot because it, it's such a tough tee shot. You can, you know hit it in the trees 100 150 yards of the tee there if you're not careful and so i managed to um get one going down the middle and uh made the walk up the hill and got down there and saw the ball in the divot and i was kind of shocked and my caddy my caddy really did a great job he he just said hey you knew this wasn't going to be easy Uh, you know just one more good good shot you got to hit here i would say if you're ever going to be in a divot that wasn't a bad situation to be in you know, taking away all the pressure and trying to win a major championship. But yeah, when you're yeah. on an up, when when you're on an upslope, um, it increases. You know, with the short iron in particular, you'll generally lean into it a little bit more, so you'll get a bit more angle of attack, and so you can come down a bit more steeply on it. And uh, so I had a, a perfect number for an eight iron, and so that's what I did. 
you know, just one of those old Cape Town swings growing up in the wind there, just lean on it. <laughs> nice and easy. And, and, uh, and it just came out perfect. I, actually, it came out like it, it was on a tee. I mean, it was a perfect flight, perfect spin, and uh, finished up there about, you know, 10 to 15 feet right on the, on the perfect level there, that bottom level. But didn't you ask and your then, caddy? Didn't you ask your caddy how many putts can I three putt and still win this thing? Yeah, that's what happened. So after that shot, and I gave him back the eight iron, and he gave me the putter. He he's got a huge smile on his face, and I said, <laughs> "So how how are we doing?" And he said, "Oh no, it's all over. You've got a three shot lead." And then I realized too why he was so calm, seeing my ball in the dip. But, <laughs> uh, I said to him, you know, so so wait. I was trying to figure all this out. I was like, okay, so wait, if if I I can still three putt and win. And he said, no, no, you can four putt and win. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You're all good. So at that point, that was really like the first time all week that I came out of like this bubble that I was in mentally. And, you know, when I, when I played my best, I would get so zoned in that even if my head was up and I was looking around, I, I didn't really see anything. It sounds really weird, but I would just see shapes. I wouldn't really um, have any focus on faces or who was in the crowd or anything else that was going on. I would just, everything would just kind of be a blur. And it was the same with leaderboards. Like I would see some names. I would never see numbers. And, but that was the first time that week that I came out of that. In the zone. And I looked up yep. and I started seeing everybody and I started seeing my family and my wife and my kid and behind the green and, and, and recognizing faces in the crowd and, and uh, hearing South African accents uh, shouting and, um, and cheering uh, and seeing members that I'd met over the years that I'd recognized. And so that was pretty cool because like I touched on earlier on, when I first watched in 1986, uh, and watched every year after that. Do you see those players that you always look up to making that walk up to 18 green and the patrons are standing and, and clapping and, uh, you know, it was really cool that I could really enjoy that and take that in and experience that with, without having to, let's say, know that I had to make a putt to win or, or two putt to win. I could really, uh, just come out of that bubble and 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 pay attention to all of that. So it, that was that was something that I'm kind of thankful for as well. I'm sure you know some of the stats, but for those listening who don't know them, uh, you almost became the first player at the time in Masters history to shoot four rounds in the 60s, 75 on the final day, putting pay to that. Cameron Smith, I know, has subsequently done it, but that would have been the first time it had happened. You were fourth in the field in driving distance, most fairways hit, and the youngest player to win since Tiger won his second Masters, age 25, which I found really interesting. Yeah, yeah, there was a few. I, the one record that still stands is I played the the par fours in 10 under for the week. And so that's that's unheard of. I actually broke Ben Hogan's record. Oh, wow. It's um, a nice one to break. 10, un, 10 under for the par fours, yeah. You know, because ordinarily guys make their score on the fives. Yeah. There. But I was just hitting the ball so well. I just... I really got the par fours, and um, so yeah, I time I timed it well. I timed it well. It was it was a good one. Good good week to play well. Yeah. <laughs> so so what's it, Trevor? What's it like going back to the same spot every year where you had your finest moment? I mean, you, you know, that 08 is you know now 13 years ago. You've obviously been back mm. so many times, yes. and, and 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 what is it? Because you obviously you're going back now as a broadcaster. But what is it like for you to go back every year? And we'll talk about. I'd like to talk about the Champions Dinner if you don't mind. But what's it like going back? Yeah. It's great. It's great. It's, you know, Augusta National does such an amazing job of, you know, preserving history and traditions. And, um, you know, it's incredible. I've been fortunate enough in my career to do some pretty amazing stuff through the game of golf. You know, stuff like, uh, meeting Nelson Mandela, going to his house, let's say, meeting him. Okay, I'll throw that out there. Or going to the White House for dinner or meeting three U.S. presidents or crazy stuff, meeting celebrities that, you know, just unbelievable what the game of golf has afforded me. 
And in, in many cases, not all, but, um, you know, so often when something great, you're about to experience something great and your imagination starts to really run with it and you build it up and you build it up and you build it up. And uh, so many times it, it maybe doesn't pan out exactly how you experienced. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wow, I thought, you know, I thought that would be a little bit different. Augusta National, going to Augusta National, and I'm not even talking about playing in the tournament. I'm just talking about going there. Mm-hmm. It's, it was better than I ever imagined the first time I went there. And, and you know, they just find a way to keep improving that. And I think that's why you see players really, uh, really all year long just trying so hard to make sure that they get into that tournament because it is something that is just so special for us. And when you've won and you keep going back, uh, it's amazing because you really do feel like you are a tiny little thread in, in the history of, of a very special sporting event. And so that is, that's really exciting to be a part of. And now that I get to take my kids and they're getting of age to where they can really start to understand that and really start to understand how cool of an achievement that was and, and how much it, it means to me, uh, you know, particularly coming from South Africa. You know, it's a long road. It's a long road from South Africa to winning the Masters tournament. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, it's, it's really cool to see it through the years. I mean, you mentioned 13 years since I won, so... You know, if you go back to 99, being an 18-year-old kid playing in the Masters for the first time, you know, all the way through the years of winning there in 08 and then now going back as a broadcaster all those years later, um, it's just so many different layers to all the experiences that, that is, it's, uh, it's, it's actually even hard to put words to, to be honest with you. That I wouldn't be able to do it justice. Tell us about that Champions Dinner, and I appreciate there's you know there's a certain code uh, you know with, with regards to you know I don't know if you call it secrecy, and uh, but in terms of sharing what goes on there. But I mean, you must have had some incredible, incredibly special moments since you know in the last thirteen years, whether it was sitting next to Arnold Palmer or something like that. Anything you can share with us that really stands out from those Champions Dinners? Well, it's been a lot of amazing, a lot of amazing experiences. You know, just to be sitting in in that room with that group of champions, it's kind of like pinch yourself stuff. Yeah. Uh, invariably, at some point during the evening, I'll I'll kind of lean back and take a look around and be like, "Whoa, this is it's quite heavy." <laughs> this really. is my life, um, and it's still pretty yeah. cool every time. <laughs> but uh, you know, the thing that really jumps to mind is uh, the last time that Arnold Palmer attended and. He, toward the end of the dinner, got up and spoke. And you really got a feeling like he had an inkling that that would be the last one that he would attend. And he spoke with so much feeling and emotion to us about what the tournament meant to him and what professional golf has meant to him and how important it is for us to uh, continue to do our part to give back to the game and grow the game and continue that uh, uh, the masters would would grow in stature. It was an amazing moment. It was amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were a lot of people with tears in their eyes. Yeah, I'm sure. After that, it, it was fantastic. And Gary's given a bunch of good speeches over the years. Um and uh, at last year's Champions Dinner, when Tiger was hosting in 20, uh, after that incredible win in 19, the, the speech he gave was also very emotional. You know, he spoke about wondering at times whether he would ever be able to play again with, with some of the back stuff that he was going through and the surgeries and the mm-hmm. rehab and, and then having that opportunity to be hosting us that evening again when he won his fifth green jacket, like, you could see in, in a certain way, it's funny because you feel the, the joy, but you also feel the pain because you feel the pain of, of like what he went through 
getting back to the point to where he could be competitive at that level in his 40s. And the amount of work and the surgeries and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. so it's it, this, just, there's just some amazing moments. But the fact that, you know, all the older guys, you get the sense that they feel like a kid again that night. Yeah, it's an appreciation and, for going back there, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, they're, they're telling stories of when they played there and when they won and, you know, some of the great shots they saw. And, and so you just get a feel like the older guys, it, it really it turns back the clock for them for a few hours. And, and that is cool to just, just sit around and listen to some of those stories. It's, uh, it's great stuff. It's, it's by far the, the greatest golfing night of the year for me. There's no doubt about it. It's just such an amazing evening from start to finish. Okay, two questions then. The best meal you've had there and the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to call out the worst, but because that, that, that may get me in some trouble. But well, you won't be invited back. Of- <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, we'll let you off the hook. The best meal you've had. There's been, there's been a number of good ones. i got to say, Adam Scott did a great job. He did like an Australian surf and turf uh, with some incredible wines. Oh, good on you, mate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was, it, was, it, was, it was good. It was very, very good. Angel Cabrera did a great job uh, serving some, some Melbecks from Australia and uh, some steaks. And so, yeah, it, uh, it's, it's just so much fun. And it also gives us another opportunity to you know, give the defending champion, you know, give him a tough time and, and have some fun with it. Uh, but so, yeah, there's, there's, but you know, they could serve me like a lettuce leaf and a glass of water and I would, I would, I would be He'd quite be happy. content that evening. I'm sure Gary would approve of that. <laughs> yeah, he would, <laughs> and, and Trevor, Hideki Matsuyama winning it this year. Obviously, it's uh, it's great for Japanese golf and you as a President's Cup captain, I'm sure we're particularly pleased. But give us your thoughts on, on Hideki's win. Yeah, it was really awesome, wasn't it? Uh, we've been waiting for so many years for a Japanese uh, male player to win a major. It's been, a, a, uh, I'm wanting to say, two or three on the, on the woman's side. Um, and... You know, it's been earmarked for Hideki for quite some time. He's had so much potential. He's uh, been right up there in the world rankings for many years. And we've kind of been waiting. And the putting has been holding him back. Uh, And now he just found a way to put it all together there at Augusta. And he had us a little nervous there on my hole. You know, I'm on 15 tower. Last uh, in November, uh, DJ had a decent sized lead. He laid up. He had a brilliant wedge, about 10 feet, and made a birdie there and just kept cruising along. So there was no drama. But now, all of a sudden, this year, uh, Hideki's got a decent sized lead. He hits a good drive. He decides to go for it and he just nukes this forearm and it lands on the back edge and skips down into the water on 16. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was like game on and things really got quite interesting there for, for a little while. It, you know, shall I say for 10 minutes until uh, Shoffley hit in the water on 16. But uh, that was pretty exciting. And it's just so huge for golf. I actually would go as far to say that other than Tiger Woods, or maybe maybe I'll go with Rory McIlroy as well, because if he wins the Masters, he wins the Grand Slam, and that's, yeah. that's rarefied air. So other than those two, Matsuyama has got to be the next biggest story from a worldwide standpoint, from understanding how big golf is in Japan and understanding how many fans they have and, and how excited they are about the game of golf over there. Uh, it's it's going to be huge. And I don't think we've quite seen the repercussions of that yet. Um, but as he starts to come back over here to play, I actually spoke to him last <laughs> Spoke to him last week. He had to do a two-week quarantine in Japan before he could before he could get out and see everybody. So he's going to spend a few more weeks over there enjoying this uh, before the PGA. Uh, but I think we all start to get a little understanding when he comes back and starts to play out on the PGA Tour again. I'm sure the media is going to be all over him. You look at him and he's such a, a quiet humble guy you see those photos of him at atlanta airport with the jacket slung over the chair i mean waiting to board a flight i mean there are no airs and graces about him no not at all but that's 
it's the Japanese way. And it's one of the reasons why I love that country so much. And I love their culture so much. It's just so respectful and so humble all the time. And so I wasn't surprised by that at all. And that's, it's, it's just, uh, it's just their culture. Just amazing people, amazing people. Talk about culture, Trevor. Um, and as a captain of an international team trying to beat the, the Americans for the first time in, in, in many years in, in the President's Cup, you know, I'm going to mm. ask you the million-dollar question. You know, what, what do you have to do to get it right, to, to, to get that elusive win for, for, the, for the international team next time around? Well, I don't think it's one thing we have to do right. I think, I think we have to do a lot of things right. We almost have to do everything perfectly, really, to have a chance. We, we're... We are we're massive underdogs, and, and we understand that, and it's been that way for the longest time. If you look at if you look at Australia in 2019, the average world ranking on our team was 42 and a half, and the average world ranking on the American team was 12 and a half. So that tells a story as to how big of an underdog we are. And we understand that and we, we enjoy that. Look, the, the European team seems to find a great way to use that to their advantage. Yeah. And they do it very well and they have a great record. Uh, and so we need to find a way to tap into that a little bit. And we did in, starting in 2019. And um, I think we, we will continue to do that. Uh, but because of that gap, you know, the American team is so stacked and so good and so talented uh, that we have to we have to be on our A game, you know. Myself and my assistants will have to make rock solid decisions, and then the players are going to have to to have their A game. Particularly playing here in America, uh, Charlotte is a great sporting city. I mean, if you if you guys watched last night, you know, crowds are big. Yeah, no, there's limits. To, there, there's, there's limits to it right now, and they're only allowing uh, partial attendance. Uh, there's there's a, an NFL team there. There's an NBA team there. It's where NASCAR is headquartered. Like it's a, they have tons of great college sports there, uh, and so huge sporting city. And there's going to be a bunch of people by the end of next year at that Presidents Cup. So we're going to have to deal with that as well, uh, having a massive crowd against us. Um, so we understand all these things, but we for sure gained a little confidence down in Australia. We think that we have a system now that is uh, not only good, but it's a good foundation that we can build off of and get better and better throughout cups to come. And so, you know, we'll just go about our process and, and continue to get better at the things that uh, we think we need to improve and, and then see what happens. You know, one of the beauties of sport, one of the reasons why we all love it and we all watch it is they don't give these trophies away. You've got to go out and earn it. And uh, we'll have to just see what happens that week. What did you pick up from Ernie that you, you might want to take through to, to your team? And, and, and can we can we count on uh, a few South African briars thrown in there? <laughs> yeah, we can. We can. We can definitely <laughs> count on that. But that's, yeah. uh, you know, and the Aussies, i got to say the Aussies as well, um, you know, similar similar style of, of food that they enjoy. So we'll kind of lump ourselves together and, and have an evening like that. But that's one of the hurdles that we have to overcome. You know, in the last President's Cup, we had seven or eight different regions of the world represented in our team. And you've got to be able to understand all of those cultures and what these athletes like to eat before they compete. A lot of people are uh, extremely superstitious is, is not the right word, but they're particular. extremely conscious and particular of what they're going to eat in order to perform well. Yeah, And so you can just imagine what our, you know, food, food buffet looks like. <laughs> <We've> got, <laughs> we try our best to get everybody covered. And, um, you know, that's one of the areas that Ernie really did step it up, making sure that all these players from all these different regions are looked after the way they like to be looked after. And uh, that's huge. Players really do appreciate that. Um, but, you know, early, what he really did for us that I felt like we, we had never had from back even in the Cups that I played was he, he gave us an identity. You know, it always just felt like we were a, a bunch of players from Mish-mash. all over coming together. And, yeah, it was it's sort of a, um, you know, just sort of thrown together. Not, not, not too much planning. And 
he just decided to draw a line in the sand and it started with the logo that he that uh, he came up with and it was just something that we could all get behind you know rather than having uh, just some type of random logo that they even used to use for us i don't even know what it was it changed a bunch of times over the years but this just gives us something that we know we play for that when we see it out there like we understand what it means um so that identity and then the structure that he gave uh, with with uh, some of the ideas and the way we will run our team uh, here on out, I thought was just brilliant. He was an amazing captain, absolutely amazing. Uh, he was very motivational um, and it just played out really well. I mean, as you guys know, he's, 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 a, he's a massive guy with a, a, a great presence and he really impressed that on the youngsters. Like we had, we had seven rookies on our team and they just, they just couldn't wait to get out and play for him. And that was cool, cool to see and be a part of. Uh, So he built us a lovely foundation that uh, we'll continue to grow on and get better at. And, and I also think that our players are getting uh, younger and better and starting to, to uh, gain some experience. So, you know, are we underdogs 100% but uh i think it's going to be i think it's going to be a great event we're looking forward to it but i mean also with the delay and it now being pushed out by uh, there's so much that can happen between now and then well absolutely i mean as as we even saw with this pandemic i mean we were i remember sitting on the desk working for golf channel at the players championship on a tuesday afternoon and all of a sudden that night felt like the world came to an end sports stopped everybody went home and we all were told to stay at our houses for about six months so you know you you never quite know anymore you've just got to be thankful for every day that pitches up but yeah there's there's a long way to go you know our qualification hasn't even started yet it'll start later this year and it uh it's pretty encouraging and exciting to see a bunch of youngsters playing uh, all over the world so yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how how it pans out you're right Okay, I want to bring it back to South Africa, and I want to bring it back to, to <laughs> Somerset West, where it all began. I'm yep. from Stellenbosch, so I'm just down the drag. Particularly the role your father, Johan, played in nurturing you as a young golfer, building the putting green in the yard with the floodlights and the bunkers, and, and supporting you and sending you over to the States to, to live your dream. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's incredible when I think back now, and particularly now that I'm a parent, that, that, that my folks bought into my dreams so heavily you know they never ever pushed me but they just always made sure that one way or another that I had the opportunity to do what I wanted to do and there was a ton of sacrifice from their part I mean don't don't get me wrong there was there was a lot of struggle times there as well and the fact that they continued to do that and believe, believe me that I wanted to be back then, I would, I would say I wanted to be the best golfer in the world. You know, even from the age of five, I was telling them that <laughs> sounds crazy. Like I never wanted to be a fireman or a pilot or anything like that. It just started with, I want to be the best golfer in the world. And then they and, indulged you and they let you. Yeah. And they, they let me, they never told me I couldn't. They never told me I was silly or I, I would grow out of it. They just facilitated it. They found a way to say, okay, you want to play golf? Cool. Uh, here's when we'll get you to the golf course. And it was just amazing, you know, so amazing. Uh, the, the planning that uh, they had to go through in order to get funds and find funds for me to, to go and compete against the best players in the world at like the British Amateurs or coming to play here uh, in the AJGA it's it was um very selfless of them you know they 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 gave everything they could and so i'm very thankful for that it's nice now they they live about 20 minutes from me so we see them regularly and uh they're still doing well and you know they love the game and and watch all the time and uh, are following you know all the all the young south africans and know exactly what's going on there but yeah i when I think back to my childhood, and I've told my, my kids this many times, I don't think you could have a better childhood than what I had. I really don't. Growing up in Somerset West, just felt like, okay, the winters it could be cold and rainy, but 
Yeah, it used to rain back then in winter. (laughs) A little bit wet there, yeah. Yeah, I guess that now we've had all sorts of droughts and stuff down there. But, you know, it just felt like the weather was always nice. And there's so many good golf courses to play within 30 minutes. I mean, think about all the courses in around Cape Town and Stellenbosch and Paul and you know, even even going to the other side to to Amarnus and Worcester and all those courses yeah. in Malmesbury, they were so good. When we were playing league golf, when I was playing league golf for Somerset West Country Club, man, it was just the best, the absolute best. I, I would I would pack my my uh, my mom's car in the mornings when I left for school. I'd put my clubs and and golf clothes in there my dad would then take me to school on his way to work he was working at Stellenbosch in Stellenbosch uh, and he would drop me at school and then my mom would pick me up from school at two o'clock uh, I went to Beaumont primary and then I went to Hartford <laughs> Holland and um, and she would drive me straight to Somerset West Country Club and so I'd be there by you know before 2.15 and get changed and we had so many good junior golfers and amateur golfers there at the time. So many. And so there was always guys hanging around and practicing and putting competitions and chipping competitions and go play nine. And then my dad would pick me up on his way home from work. So, you know, right around six or six thirty, and inevitably I would still be on the course and he would walk out and find me on one of the holes and then he'd walk the remainder of the nine. And oh gosh, it was just a best the absolute best i played somerset west a few times and it was like running the gauntlet because you had to get over the railway line and then you had to get over the road (laughs) 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 it was like it was way it was way more than just a round of golf yeah yeah you had to you had to dodge the train and then you had to go across the national highway yeah Yeah. but i will say the holes where you had to go across the the n2 man that was a good stretch of holes there and the wind would blow so it would blow so much harder down on that stretch of holes i guess as you're getting closer to the the ocean there the yeah um and strand and so those holes were so tough yeah. but i think that's where the definition yeah. of risk and reward comes from because if you could make it over the the railway line and make it over the road <laughs> <laughs> in one piece you could finish your round I it know. was brilliant yeah. <laughs> i know but think about it back then you know i was no, there was always other people around, but a bunch of us juniors, we would just go play. Nobody was ever worried about us, and it was great. Yeah. Man, it was great. It was so awesome. And your dad, people may or may not remember, but he was commissioner of the Sunshine Tour in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. and So it, it really was for a time, and it, it still is, of course, but there was a time when it was pure golf in the Immelman house. Well, also your older brother, Mark, uh, uh, Trevor, who who is nine years older than you, but also... Uh, going to the states on, on, mm. uh, and playing college golf there. He's, he's a well-known golf coach and, and broadcaster. For those who who don't know Mark Illman, so I mean it, it, to say you were a, a golf mad family would be an under, understatement. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. But at this point, I have to mention my sister because she always, whenever I do one of these, and we talk about the family, <laughs> she, she and gets left out. My sister Michelle, and then I always get a text message from her, like, "Oh, remember me? I'm your sister." So, you know, also a good golfer. Michelle, my sister Michelle never got into golf, so she's the smart one. You know, she's still like sane, but uh, she never got into golf. But uh, she's six years older than me, and actually still lives in Somerset West uh, with her two children. And uh, she was also a massive part of of my childhood from a standpoint of. Obviously, you know, family goes without saying, but what I mean by a massive part of my golfing career is, you know, she would be able to drive me around as well. So drive me to these different golf courses and pick me up and always giving me money so that I could get something to eat. And Jeez, uh, Trevor, you had the whole world carting you around. Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. So my sister, Michelle, I got to give her a shout out, man. I wouldn't I wouldn't have achieved what I achieved without her. You saved yourself. Well done. For the, for the, for the next family bribe back in Somerset West. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. I remember watching you at Royal Cape. I think it was in 2000. I was following you around. You saw of Ernie then and I remember for a time it was you and John Hugo that were going head to head on on the local yeah. tour do you still keep in touch with with any of the guys that you competed against when you were out here yeah absolutely we actually we actually I, I speak to John, uh, John every now and then through text and then we run into each other at different tournaments uh, but we actually started a, a western province golf 
WhatsApp, WhatsApp group six six months ago, and it's got about thirty or forty guys on there, and so. Uh, there's all sorts of banter and jokes and, and memories flowing back and forth with, you know, so many of the great players that I used to watch when I was a kid, you know, thinking of Gerald Williams and Rayno Bogus and uh, Brian Levson, yep. all, you know, all of those guys, OB Barber. Um, so it's pretty cool to, to see where all of these guys are at now um, living uh we sprayed all over the world from new zealand to scotland to the u.s we're, we're kind of all over um and what the guys are doing and their families now and grandchildren and all that stuff so it's kind of cool and, and once again sort of linking up to when i said earlier that the the things that the game of golf has afforded me uh, through my life you know that's that's another thing is being able to make so many friends through the years uh, through this game that we all love uh, is uh, it's, it's one of the special things that uh, maybe at times we take for granted uh, is how, you know, special the sport is from that standpoint. Yeah. Well, Trevor, what about some of the guys you, you played with out on tour? I mean, you know, Tim Clark and Rory Sabatini, a bit older than you, and then Louis Oestazen, a bit younger, Charles Schwarzel. Um, you guys still in touch? Yeah, all the time, all the time. Uh Timmy, I text a lot with. He doesn't come out on tour anymore. Uh, he's, uh, man, he's had a really tough time. With Gee, it's, it's, we had him on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and it's just absolutely crazy well, what's happened to that guy. Yeah, what a great player. What a yeah. great player he was. And a wonderful human being as well. Just mm. the best guy to be around. So much fun. So funny. Uh, keep in touch with him through text. Probably chat to him uh, every month or so. Uh, Charles and Louis, I see regularly. In fact, Louis is, uh, what day is it today? Monday. Louis spending the night at my house on Wednesday. So I'll be catching, I'll be catching <laughs> up with him again on Wednesday. Yeah. We're going to have a bra here. And uh, uh, Charles, I saw this last week at Quail Hollow. Brandon Grace, I see regularly out on tour. Eric Van Royen, I see regularly. Uh, Sabo as well. Uh, so yeah, man, with my job now, part of my job is to make sure that I know what all of these guys are doing anyway. Mm. Uh, and particularly now with the president's cup, well, okay, well, Sabo can't play for us anymore, but all the others. <laughs> yes, he make a decision to go somewhere else now, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he's, he's, uh, he's not able, but all the others, you know, I want to make sure that they know I'm there for them and, uh. We had a little squad get together this last week at Quail Hollow, which was a lot of fun to catch up with all the guys again. So, yeah, uh, absolutely in contact with all of those guys all the time. Off the back of that, Trevor, it would be remiss of me not not to ask you about the the young crop of South African golfers coming through. We've had an amazing stretch, Gary Higa. I mean, you know, one mm -hmm. of the hottest golfers around. Two wins out of three tournaments on the European Tour. Dean Burmester winning. You know, then back here mm -hmm. on the Sunshine Tour, a couple of wins as well. Brandon Stone, Vilka, uh, Vilka, Nianaba, JC Ritchie. But I mean, uh, Higo is the one that stands out just from a results point of view. Yeah, Higo and Nianaba are two guys that I've had my eye on for quite some time. Um, I've been making a solid effort to try and get them to play over here uh, and get some invites over here. But the, the COVID situation and the quarantining is. is throwing a spanner in the works. Hopefully now we're going to be able to start coming out of that. I think it's very important uh, for these guys to, to come over here and start playing a little bit more over here uh, just to really get used to the magnitude of it and the feeling of it. But yeah, it's been so amazing to see the results that they've had. The, the job that the South African Golf Development Board have done in the last decade or so uh, and I know Jan Rupert started that and, and uh, has given a lot of resources to guys like Grant Hepburn. Really has been awesome. And even going further back than that with the Ernie Els Foundation, who had guys like uh, Louis and Gracie coming through there. We have such a ridiculous amount of sporting talent in South Africa. Mm. And uh, we are lucky with golf that now they're going to have opportunities to come through a, a well-structured system with good coaching. And I think we're starting to now see the results of, of that platform that, that uh, Johan Rupert has put in place. Yeah. And so, yeah, very proud um, for me to 
see these guys start to break through at these different levels and really kick on their career. Higo is an interesting one because he actually played for me when I was captain of the International Junior President's Cup team in, in New York. Okay. And so I saw saw the talent there. Jaden Shaper is another one. Yeah. Man, is that guy any good? Yeah. He is so good. And so, yeah, I saw saw that early from those guys. And it's nice to see them just, you know, make the progression and, 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 and start to hone their skill. Uh, and so I look forward to them coming out here to play a bit more on the PGA Tour. And, and then they can really get a feel for where they stand and, and what, what they can continue to get better at. I'm sure you've seen this, but there are now 10 South Africans in the top 100 in the world. Mm. Just quite amazing, uh, isn't it? Great, yeah, amazing. We have so much sporting talent, man. It's uh, South Africans are blessed, blessed with that in all sports. You know, I look at the swimmers that we've had, and the obvious, the the obvious ones are the rugby players and the cricket players and hockey, and you go through all the sports. But uh, South Africans are blessed with a lot of natural hand-eye coordinations. I don't know why, but it just is what it is. And and for somebody that has lived outside of South Africa for the last, uh, let's call it, twenty years, it's it's really cool to to see it from afar and root for the athletes whenever they're playing uh, all over the world. It's it's cool stuff. Well, before we let you go, who's going to be the next South African to win a major, in your opinion? That's a good question. That's <laughs> a good question. You know, first of all. Uh, Schwarzel is, is 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 having a little resurgence. Yeah, he seems like he's coming back. Yeah, he's starting to get his confidence back, and his game is really shaping up nicely. He's starting to hit the ball well again. He's starting to drive it. He's hitting it miles. Uh, in fact, when him and Louis lost in the playoff a couple of weeks ago, Charles on his own ball throughout the week. I think he was like the fourth best driver off the tee that week. So. Uh, that's becoming a weapon again. He's putting. He's gone through a few different changes with his putting, using different styles and what have you. But he's gone back to conventional now. It's really starting to look good. And week after week, when I see him, I can see his confidence growing. So he could jump up in a major. There's no doubt about it. Because once you, when you've been to that level, and let's say you fall off a little bit and you start coming back. Let's say in like you know you know whatever the next major is, I'm not sure if he's in the PGA or not. But the next major he plays, somehow he gets himself into contention. He will be very comfortable there because he he's been there and he knows what it takes and he understands all the ins and outs of that moment. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. I feel like Louis is way overdue. Way yeah, overdue. Yeah, agreed there. He's been so he's been so good for so long. And it feels like all the biggest tournaments, you know, when you run through the leaderboard on Friday and Saturday, he's right there. And for some other reason, he, he hasn't stepped through. Obviously, he's got the game. Competition is extremely stiff. Competition's very, very deep now. But yeah, I feel like he's overdue and it could happen any moment. As far as the youngsters, you know, a lot of them still have to get more experience in major championships. It's a different animal. It's a total different beast, whether it be mentally or physically. The golf courses are different. The atmosphere is much different uh, to what uh, some of them may be used to on the European Tour or the Sunshine Tour. And then the level of competition is is stiff. And when you all of a sudden pitch up on the range on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever it is, and you look up down the range and you see, oh, there's Dustin Johnson, oh, there's Rory McIlroy, oh, there's Justin Thomas, there's Morikawa, there's DeChambeau hitting it over the other end of the range. <laughs> you know, you start to notice, like, whoa, okay, this is this is the big leagues. Yeah, hence why you want, and, you want your Ninabas and your and your Higos to get out there and start playing and, and start almost debunking the myth of, of these guys being unbeatable and, and getting used to the feeling out there, as you talked about. 100%. 100%. I don't want any of those guys pitching up at the President's Cup. Selfishly, I'm talking about the yeah. President's Cup. But I don't want those guys pitching up at the President's Cup, and that's the first time they ever play with Dustin Johnson. Mm. I mean, that just wouldn't put us in a strong position. <clears throat> I'm not saying that that necessarily means they're going to lose, but there's no doubt, you know, you roll the clock back to when I was uh, coming through, 
first time I played with Tiger Woods, first time I played with Ernie Els, first time I played with VJ Singh. That was no joke. You got to you've got to build up to that moment. It's 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 the it's the next step. It's one of the final steps in your like development, yeah. Honing of your skill and your development and polishing that diamond, you know. So the more the more access that we can get for our young South Africans to uh, become a bit more immune to to that is 100% to their advantage and so that's that's for sure something that I'll be looking forward to and looking into Trevor we're going to leave it there thank you for giving us your time it's been awesome catching up with you we, we dig hearing you on commentary yeah the family woman over there your insights are great maybe we can touch base with you closer to the president's cup that would be absolutely amazing sounds good guys I've enjoyed uh, talking to a couple of South Africans it's good stuff Take it easy over there. Thanks Thank for you. your time, Trevor. Thanks. Uh, have a good one. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.